take our Bibles and turn to Daniel. We are already on Daniel chapter 9. We come to this next chapter, and the title of my message is probably going to span at least three messages. Uh, the first one, I, I know in your bulletin, it probably says up to verse number 19, but I probably won't get past the half of verse number 4. Because it's, it's uh, very important what's happening here in, in Daniel chapter 9. Remember, we got done last week in Daniel chapter 8, where he again went back to the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, and then the kingdom of Greece, which took over the uh, kingdom of the Medes and Persians, and we saw that small horn rising up, and we recognize that horn in history as Antiochus Epiphanes, how wicked and cruel he was, and yet he was subdued, and that yet is a, uh, a sign or a picture of what will come in the Antichrist. And after Daniel received that vision, he was deeply overwhelmed. And if you go back to chapter 8, verse 27, this is how it, he responded to it. It says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again, carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Daniel realized something at the end of that vision, which drove him to what happens next in, in sequence. And what happens to Daniel at this point is he's driven to prayer. And so a large portion of chapter 9 is, matter of fact, one, one of the longest prayers, uh, possibly in the Old Testament. And the prayer is so in line with what he just said in the first eight chapters and what is going to happen in the future. And he is entering in to what God is doing in a very literal way. And how he does that is by prayer. And that's what we do too. We enter into the m movement of the program of God in history by praying. That's what we do probably more than anything. And then, of course, the program that God has us involved with in taking the gospel to those who need the gospel so their eyes can be opened, so they can be saved. So we come here and we begin to see the heart of Daniel that his heart is moved to the Lord in a very intimate way. We see this man in deep prayer. And the prayer we see as we move along in the prayer in the weeks to come that it's baptized in in-depth Bible study. You remember when we first started this book I gave you the characteristics of some of the young men in Daniel, or, or Daniel himself, actually. And one of the characteristics that I mentioned, or that's mentioned, well, let's go back to chapter 1 and see what exactly is mentioned. It says in verse number 3, remember when the, the king, the Babylonian king, was looking for youths? And he says, listen, get me the smartest youths. Get me those Hebrews that men are educated. Get me Hebrews with good character. And he, they picked Daniel, and then look, it says in, in verse 3 of chapter 1, go back there, it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths, 
in whom was no defect. And he goes on uh, to explain some of those things. And he says in the latter part of verse number four, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature of the lang- and, and the language of the Chaldeans. See, in verse number three, we see that Daniel and his three friends were in either in the line of kings or trained in kingdom responsibilities. I mentioned that really in the first couple messages, but what is so interesting about that is this, that these Hebrews were educated in the upper class, the royal families of Judah. And remember, when I was going through the book of Proverbs, Proverbs was a book that was taught to kings and was taught to those who would serve in the kingdom. So, there's high probability that Daniel and his friends were trained as a noble in the king's service from the book of Proverbs. But what else is going to be revealed in this particular chapter, chapter 9, is that Daniel was a constant and consistent student of Scripture. We're going to see the first part of it tonight, and then as we get into this prayer, we're going to see that this he understood He was studying Ezekiel. He was immersed in the book of Deuteronomy. He understood Genesis. It all comes out in this prayer that Daniel was no slappy when it came to what he understood what the Scriptures meant and what what was written in them from at the time that he was living. He was a student of Scripture. It's going to come out even in the first part here. But as uh, we go through this chapter, we'll be looking at some of the details that are embedded in it. And we find here later in the Persian period that he has this vision. Look, it says chapter 9, verse number 1. He says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. And then in verse 2, in the first year of his reign. Now, what happened here is that Daniel began to realize something. That if you remember way back when, I gave you kind of a chronological order of what was going on with Daniel and his friends. And remember, it was three, there were three Babylonian invasions that happened before Jerusalem was actually taken. There was the first Babylonian invasion, and that was in, in 605 B.C., there was the second Babylonian invasion under uh, King Jehoiachin, and then there was the third Babylonian invasion under King Zedekiah, where they actually went into Jerusalem and plundered it, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and took all the rest of the people that were there into Babylonian captivity. You remember that, right? Well, remember, Daniel was ter- taken in the first wave. And the reason why is because something new was happening in the world and the Babylonian king knew it was coming down and he had established a new government. It, it was Remember, it's, we, they were entering into the times of the Gentiles. When the Gentiles, there's no, there's no temple, God is no longer speaking uh, to a prophet, to a, to a king. There are no prophets. There, are, there is no temple. There is no more sacrifices. There is no more 
everything is gone. Everything is decimated. Everything is destroyed. And so now they're in captivity. Now, of course, for Daniel, it all happened in 605 B.C. when he was taken in the first wave of that Babylonian invasion. Now, that becomes very important in chapter 9 because Daniel gives attention to prayer for a very specific reason. Because Daniel, being God's servant, was very in tune with God's program. He was in tune also with the need of the people in exile. In exile, He was, in a sense, acting between God and the people. Being the prophet, the spokesman. And communicating to the people that people were hearing what was going on with Daniel. They were getting the message from Ezekiel. They were getting the messages. They had the messages from the prophet Jeremiah. So they understood something. But what was, what they did not have in exile was the word of God. They didn't have the written word there. They had the spoken word. Daniel had access to the written word. So, again, look at verse number 1. Look at, the, look at what is said here because this is significant. He says something twice. He hasn't done this before like this in just one sentence. He said, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in verse 2, he says this, In the first year of his reign. He is very interested about the first year of his reign. Now, remember, when this man took over, Darius, something new was happening. He comes in with a new government. He's a new man, a different kind of man than the other kings that were before him. And so Daniel's acting like a prophet. And if you want to jog your memory back again, remember when I started off saying, asking the question, what exactly is a prophet? And I said several things. A prophet, of course, says, thus says the Lord. That the Lord first speaks to the prophet, then the prophet turns around and speaks to the people. The message is never for the prophet alone. It is always for the people. Now, of course, many times it was for the king and then for the people. But often we see it reversed in the times of the Gentiles where the people got the message and then the king got the message as God works circumstances to get the message to the king. But God, secondly, God speaks, as far as what a prophet is, directly to a prophet, a direct revelation from God to the prophet. And so if that's what a prophet is, we would expect the word of God to speak towards that particular end. And then I said, there is a prior situation in each case that a prophet is called into, that God never gives a word to the prophet for, for the prophet, but for the kings, for the priests, for the people of Israel or Judas, God always speaks to his prophets for his people. The words of a loving God to his people. But then I said this, that God speaks also when there is a problem amongst his people when there is some kind of crisis, when there is some kind of need that his people has, that the whole prophetic ministry is about a loving God meeting the needs of his people through this man. God speaks direct revelation to him, but it is occasioned by and related to the need of God's people. 
as I mentioned back then, if God's people needed food, he would speak about food. If God's people needed discipline, he would speak about discipline. If God's people needed hope, he would speak about the coming Messiah. If they needed encouragement, he would speak about encouragement. Well, in verse number 1 of Daniel chapter 9, he is meeting a need. The people who are in exile have a need. They've been there now 60-some years. Daniel is in his 80s. And the people are crying out. There's a lot of restlessness going on. They need hope for deliverance from being in exile. They need hope. And that's why you see this historical timing here in verse number 1. In the first year of Darius, he wanted to make no mistake that he was marking time. 6.05 it started. All right, now, now, now we're down to around 539 B.C. The Babylonian Empire has fallen, and now the Medes and the Persians r rule. So we see a new king and a new empire. Darius the Mede is the king. Darius's first year was the first year of his reign over the Babylonians after the Persians' conquest of the nation. This is all very relevant in the timing in God's prophetic plan. Like I said, I started out saying, really the first point here being in verse number 1 and part of verse 2, that God's servant Daniel is in tune with God's program and he has his pulse, he's got his hand on the pulse of the people. He's in between here, and he's very sensitive to what's going on, the timing. And so twice he repeats it, in the first year, in the first year. So the emphasis in the first year is mentioned twice because the new era signaled a desire to know God's next move concerning his people. See, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians approximately 604, 605 B.C. Now the Babylonian world empire is gone. It's, 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 it's gone forever. The, one of the greatest empires the world ever seen is gone. And now the second world empire is on the scene. Darius the Mede is the king, and he's in his first year. And Daniel's pretty excited about it. Because now it's around 538, 539 B.C. I don't know, 65 years maybe? The timing is a, is a little bit, can't really get it accurate, but approximately they're already in captivity, 65. Some push it up, maybe it's about 68 years. It, it's, it's right around that area. They've been there a long time. And they're, they're just wondering, do we have any hope? Daniel, you're getting old. You've been our spokesman. Jeremiah, at this time, he's gone. We're, you know, we're in our like second half, uh, almost a third generation here. Is, is God speaking? Is there any word from you? You see, this is the tension here. This, this is what's going on here. Now. If, if that was, if you sense that, Daniel, remember, all along, it just looks at himself as a man. 
it's got to drive you to your knees. It's, it's got to put you on your face. He's not a miracle worker. He doesn't have all knowledge. Even though he was able to uh, tell these kings about their dreams and their visions and stuff like that, it, this is different. He's, he's consumed in this. And you're going to see what happens when he, we get to the time of prayer, how consumed he is in it. So Daniel is sensitive to God's will. He's sensitive to the times and the seasons and went to the only place he can possibly go to find out what comes next. Where does he go? You know where he goes to? He goes to the Scriptures. That's where he goes. So, so, so here's Daniel. He's in between. How does he find out how to tell the people what they want to know? Well, look what he does. Second thing we see is God's servant is immersed in God's word. Look what it says in the second part of verse two. He says, "I, I Daniel, observed what the books. He observed the books. Now, the word observed means he discerned. Another way of saying it is he studied the prophet Jeremiah. He went back and he." study Jeremiah to find out what's next on the prophetic clock. What can I tell the people? See, he understood that there was about 65 to 68 years in which Israel was in captivity, Judah was in captivity. According to Jeremiah, there was only about five years left until they will be free to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and to get back and worship again, restoring even the sacrificial system in there so they can get back to some kind of normality, get back to their land, get back to the reason why they were called. All right? Now, again, don't uh, get... Daniel will bring this up, but, and I'm not going to bring it up so much tonight, but, but remember, it took that long for God to beat it out of them. He didn't bring them into captivity for no reason at all. He brought them into captivity because they were idolatrous and sinful and rebellious. And it's going to take a long time to drive that out of them until they get to the point where they again cry out to God. Well, it's getting near that point. God, the Spirit, is stirring things up. And it says in verse number 2, I, Daniel, observed in the books. And let me just stop right there. Because he, he did discern something in the books. And notice, well, look what it says, the rest of it. The number of years which was revealed at the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem. All right, so Daniel searches out the books to find out, of course, that's the scripture, and believe me, he has full confidence in the sufficiency of God's word here. He does not doubt the prophet Jeremiah one bit. And you will want to notice too, as we go along in here, go along here, that as it falls out, Daniel does not spiritualize the prophet Jeremiah. He just looks at it in its normal sense and finds out exactly what's going on. And he tells the people that. So he finds out what's going on on the prophetic clock. And it says there, Daniel points 
as he's trying to find it out, to this. What is he trying to find out? In verse number 2, the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem. That literally means to completely fill up the desolation of Jerusalem. That is, Jerusalem would lie in ruins until its inhabitants experienced the full measure of the discipline of Yahweh. That's when it's going to be complete. When God says it's complete. When God knows that they are disciplined to the place where they're ready to go back to Jerusalem, where they're ready to rebuild the city, where they're ready to rebuild the temple, where they're ready to worship God. So what's so great about this Daniel? Well, I think what's interesting here, at least is Daniel did the same thing we would do to find out times and seasons. He went to the Bible. He went right to the Scriptures. Now, I, I want to go back to where he went to, because not only did he go to the Scriptures, it, it's real neat that we can search out the same passages of Scriptures he went to, to go back to his people, to tell them what's going on on God's time clock. Look what it says. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 25. We have the same Scriptures. And this is what he's, this is what he was looking for. It says in Jeremiah chapter 25, look at verse number 11. Now this was the first prophecy of captivity. This was probably around 605 BC when Daniel was taken. He was only 15 years old then. It says this in Jeremiah, verse 11. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Verse 12. Then it will be when 70 years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nations, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make it an everlasting desolation. So he's getting the answer here in Jeremiah. It says, how long is this people going to be in captivity? 70 years. Well, hey, listen, if it was 65 years or 68 years, they're only a few years away from being set free. They're only a few years away from going back to their homeland for, for in a sense, getting a life again. I, I believe that at this point, there's probably a lot of stir. There's a lot of excitement going on as Daniel now is communicating this message, uh, going to communicate this message to the people. But... Before we look there and go that far, let's go over to chapter 29 of Jeremiah because this is the next mention of the captivity and its completion. A little bit more detail here, but look what it says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, and this is what he tells them, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their pro produce, take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its... Uh, Welfare, you will have welfare. What, do you, what is he saying to them there? Let me just stop right there. He's saying to them, listen, you guys, you're going into captivity. Get married. 
raise kids because you're going to be there a long time. All right? Try to live as normal. Don't think you're going to get there and you're going to get out of it. No. Settle down in the land. Get married. Have kids. Raise them up. Live as normal as possible in captivity because you're going to be there a long time. Now, that's not, that's not encouraging news. But then he says this in verse number 8 of chapter 29. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst or your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream. Verse 9, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, and here he gives, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Verse, well, 70 years back to the, verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you. Here's that verse everybody quotes all the time. But it, it's, it's for these guys here. It, it says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. He was talking to the exiles in Babylon. And he said, listen, you guys, I'm not here to destroy you. I'm not here to wipe the name of Israel off the face of the map. I'm here to discipline you so you can go back and worship me properly. That's why God disciplines us today. When we get messed up in sin, he has to spank us and get us back on track so we can get back into worshiping God properly in a way that honors God and not in this this uh, false way, this fake way that sometimes the flesh gets into worshiping God. In verse number 13, it's, or verse 12 says, then you'll do something. You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place where I sent you, back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So see, this is what he is doing, and Daniel is searching out the books in verse number 2. Let's go back there to Daniel. And he is finding out exactly what's going on, on in God's timetable, and he finds it from the prophet Jeremiah, so he's a student of the prophet. And he does it, why? So he can be accurate. So he can tell them, not what the prophets were telling them, so he can tell them what God, tell, what God wants them to know, the thing that's really going to encourage their hearts. So verse number two, he says, I, Daniel, observed the books, the number of years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely what? Seventy years. So where do you get that from? From his, from, from the, did he pull it out of the air? No, he searched the scriptures and got it from Daniel. So see, he was not only in tune with God and God's program and in tune with the need of the people, but he was a servant immersed in God's word. We need to be just like him. We need to be just like him. Now, after Daniel sufficiently is satisfied as to the timing and the matter in God's plan, 
then what happens next is he gives his whole attention to what was also in the prophecy that I just read. That when it comes around that time, that God's going to be wrapping things up for the exiles and preparing them to go back to the land, something's going to happen in the people. And it's going to start with Daniel. You know what it's going to be? Is they're going to begin to call upon God again. It takes 68 years, 65 years to get them to call upon God again. The way they should, yeah. We're so stubborn, aren't we? Takes takes a long time. We need uh, many kicks in the behind to do what we ought to be doing. So Daniel uh, gets the sense of the timing that God's going to work with the people, and they really do desire once again to have access to the presence of God to which they realized that 70 years or well 70 years prior they were they they were cruelly cut off for their own sin now there is light now now there's some hope now the transcendent god who seemed far off now becomes the the imminent god who now is near and at that point look what Daniel does now we get to his prayer and I'll only touch the hem of the garment in this prayer tonight but look what it says in verse number 3 what does God's servant do now? His immediate priority, once he understands all this, is not to run to the people. That's not what he does. As soon as he searched out Daniel, you know what he got? Searched out Jeremiah, he got on his face before God, before he did anything else. And you're going to see, this is one of, as I was studying this, one of the most incredible prayers I've ever read in Scripture. Never really did look at it in detail before. And we're, we're going to look at it. Not tonight, the whole thing, but only part of it tonight. We're going to look at how he sets himself up before God. And, and just to show you the weight and the gravity of the situation he's in, what he does. Look what it says in verse number 3. With all that in mind, he says this, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And in verse 4a, I pray to the Lord, my God, I'm going to stop there for tonight, but let me just explain those verses. Because the manner of his prayer is quite important, and I think helpful in regard to even our own prayer life. That Daniel, this man Daniel, has always been a man of prayer. If you go back, and in, in, in even in Daniel, we see Daniel and his three friends sought the face of God when Nebuchadnezzar threatened to slay the magicians and the counselors, and what did they do? They prayed. Daniel had a habit of praying. Three times a day, he faced Jerusalem. There was nothing in Jerusalem. There was no Jerusalem, in a sense, but he, hoping, praying, trusting what, what he knew of the Word of God, kept praying, facing Jerusalem, praying for his people praying for restoration, praying that the people would turn in repentance, praying for all those things all along the way. So Daniel was in a habit of prayer three times a day facing Jerusalem, and Daniel continued to pray even when it, prayer became illegal. It did, he did not budge. He did not flinch. He did not stop. He did not rationalize whether he should do this activity or not because his life was on the line. Daniel served God his whole heart was in to God and His Word. The world didn't budge him. 
See, th this, is, this is the person we want to be. We want to be this kind of person. See, so, who's the best man to pray on your behalf? Who's the best man to stand between God and the exiles? Who's the best man? Daniel's the best man. So we see that prayer was vital to his life, and it became a vital part of this part of the, na the history of the nation of Israel. So, consequently, when we come to his present circumstances, Daniel's ready to pray. So, verse number three and four tell us about Daniel's preparation coming before God. And look how he does it. Verse number three, there are at least five characteristics about the manner in which he prayed or prepared himself for prayer, that is very important. Look, it says, verse number three, I gave my attention, he says. This is a Hebrew word that means to, to give, of course, to put. But it, when it's coupled with attention, the word attention, actually is the Hebrew word phineum that means face. It literally means I gave my face to God. It means that Daniel looked with all his attention toward the Lord God in prayer. There's an, there is something going on here with Daniel that says when he understood all these things and we, when he had that last vision and now he realized what's going on in God's historical prophetic program, he, he just set his face towards God. There was nothing more important than that. There was nothing more important than him standing before God. So that, that that's what it means here. He attentively set his face before God. But secondly, look at what it says in verse number three. The second thing it says here, it says to do what? To seek him. So his prayer was not only attentive, it was fervent. He sought him. Actually, in the Hebrew, it is, it, it's an intensive verb, and it means, literally, he intensely sought out God, and it means also to find him. He intensely sought out God to get his attention until God gave him an answer. That's the intensity. That in a sense, God, I'm going to come, I'm going to come and pray before you and I am not going to stop doing this until you answer me. This is crucial. It's critical to him. It's critical to the people and he understood the time and he would not let this opportunity go by. This was a prayer of a determined heart given with deep intensity. It was no yawn prayer that you and I probably know more than anything. It was a few insincere words uttered before falling asleep at night. D Daniel, didn't, he wasn't interested in sleep. He wasn't interested in bodily functions, bodily needs. He wasn't interested about anything that was going about around him at this particular point. His only interest was setting his face toward God and seeking God until he got an answer. That's what he set his face and his heart to do. So his prayer was attentive, it was fervent, but look at what else it says in verse number three. It says in verse number three, to seek him. 
to seek Him. It says to seek Him, but right before that it says, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him. Meaning that thirdly, His prayer was intimate. It trips with intimacy. The face, His face is toward God. His heart is pounding with intensity. It is intimacy at its highest because he directs his prayer towards God. And for the first time in Daniel, he uses the name, a name for God he has not used before. In fact, it is El Adonai Ha Elohim, meaning the Lord God, God. The Lord God, the God, is the literal rendering here in the Hebrew. Now, you have heard the word Adonai. We have, we've sung about songs that had that word in there, but it really, it means here, owner, ruler, sovereign one. It identifies Yahweh as the owner and the ruler of the universe. He's understanding that he's coming before the God that these kings in those visions were responsible to. He's coming before the God who sets those kings up and takes them down and put different kings and different governments into place during these times. He's coming to the God he's been speaking to all along and he knows it. Not only was he able to hear Daniel's prayer, but he understood that God was able and had the power to direct the affairs of world history in order for his prayers to be answered, and that's exactly where he's going with the prayer. And you're going to find that, not tonight, but you're going to find that. We talk about the 70 weeks of Daniel. This is where he's going with the prayer. That's where he's going with it. And you're going to find out at the end how it all unfolds. So you really can't go to the uh, verse number 27, I believe it is, or 19 to the end of the chapter without looking at this prayer first. You've got to look at the prayer. The prayer sets up why he says what he says in the answer, really, to the prayer. God gives the answer. So his prayer was attentive. It was fervent. It was intimate. And we saw, we see in verse number 3, the last part of verse number 3, he says this, it was reverent. He says, and he, the Lord, uh, I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and he says supplications. That Daniel's prayer is uttered with intense, intensity, but it's also a prayer intensely felt with real individual concern before God. He did this by prayer, it says, in supplications. Prayer simply means asking here. And supplication is asking for what he felt was needed most. He knew what was needed most. What was needed most? The freedom of the exiles. But not only that, the whole future of the nation of Israel. What's needed most is, remember, when the glory of God would again, once again, come to Jerusalem and all the people would worship. That's the need. That's what he's praying towards. He's praying to the ultimate future of the eternal kingdom of God. Every one of the part of the visions, remember, the, the stone comes and the kingdom of God fills the earth. He's saying, I'm praying towards that end. I'm praying to when it's all done. When we're out of the times of the Gentiles and, and God is ultimately ruling 
as King of kings and Lord of lords, that's where his prayer is heading. So he's praying here with need, a felt need. Not only a felt need of the people, he's praying with a felt need of God. And we'll later see that he asked for himself and others the forgiveness and deliverance that was the cry of his heart for the people. That was the only way that they were going to come back to God. But also, he was praying reverently because of his posture. Look what it says in verse number 3. He says, after prayer and supplications, with fasting. Fasting shows probably more than anything the posture of the person giving the prayer. It, it was a posture of reverence, of deep concern, that, that the prophet was present before the Lord and nothing was more important than being there and praying this prayer. No, no physical sustenance, no basic need of life was important to him at this, this point. And so it says that he came with fasting. And it's, it stresses the turning from all other things to consecrate on talking to the Lord. And really, when anybody takes on any kind of posture of fasting, you know, people fast today for losing weight most of the time. But here, this was spiritual stuff. This was, you, you are so intent about what you need to ask God that you don't even feel the need of, of, of food. You don't feel the need of any kind of physical needs. Because you know you're before the one who meets all those things, and this was more important than anything else. Well, a good example of, of this whole thing about fasting is remember when uh, Moses went up to the mountain at Horeb. Um, the Bible tells us that when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord had made with you. Then I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and I neither ate bread nor drank water. Now, if there's a sense of you're in the presence of God, do you understand that the things of the world, the substance of the body, don't mean a whole lot of things? If you're that in tune, that focused, understanding the historical and uh, significance of why you're there, this is, this is an incredible incredible moment where this man stands in the gap and God, what is so amazing about this is that in God's sovereignty he did not, he will not and does not accomplish his will on, on history of, of all humanity unless we pray. That prayer is vital for moving the hand of God in the future. With all those prophecies, he still uses the human instrument to pray. See, knowing this, now I understand more of what Matthew was saying, thy kingdom come. See, we are to be part of praying that. That God's kingdom would ultimately, finally be consummated and come and do what it's supposed to be doing and we're going to be part of that thing. And so, so he prays attentively and fervently and intimately and reverently, but here's the last thing in verse number three. 
which may be the more significant thing for the human being, is he, he prays humbly. It says in verse number 3, with fasting, fasting sackcloth and ashes. Now sack, sackcloth was really a mesh sack. They used to put grain in it. It was the most uncomfortable thing you possibly could wear. All right? We, we think about a burlap bag, probably real close. All right? Go ahead, go home, make yourself up a burlap suit. All right? Do it. Nothing underneath, no inner lining. Burlap on skin. Why'd they do that? Because sackcloth in the Old Testament showed mourning and humiliation. He was coming before God knowingly as a sinner, but also in behalf of a nation of sinners. So he comes and clothes himself with sackcloth, showing his posture of humility, but also representing an inward attitude of his heart. And he, of course, ashes, they used to sit in ashes and throw the ashes on their heads um, and just be in a, a, really a pathetic posture of humiliation before God, signifying to the wickedness and sinfulness of man. Now, when prayer is accompanied by fasts and sackcloth and ashes, it indicates a deep sorrow and a deep grief before God. So, this begins a prayer of repentance, a prayer that acknowledges sin. Ezra says this in Ezra chapter 9. He says this about the attitude of a person who approaches God in this manner. It says, But at the evening offering I arose with my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have arisen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. That's the sense that you come before God. Even though you come attentively and fervently and intimately and reverently, you come with humility because of the sins of the people and your own personal sin. So Daniel, Daniel's posture before God includes all five characteristics because he must come and represent the people before God he adjusts himself Godward before he begins to speak. He hasn't spoken really anything yet. He hasn't talked to God yet. He just made himself ready. Do you see the preparation that went into preparing himself to pray to God? If we would just take and glean some of this to prepare ourselves for worship, or to prepare ourselves for studying the Word of God, or to prepare ourselves for just our private prayer time. You know, we're to come boldly before God, but we're to, we're, we've, got, we've got to remember who we're coming before and not forget that. And so I think that the example on the way he came is good for us. I think it's, it could be practiced by every single one of us. And after that preparation, 
Now look at what he does in verse number 4. Just the first part of the verse, and I'm not even going to really look at it. He says in verse 4, After all that, I pray to the Lord my God. That's just preparation. Before, do you, do you see how long it takes him to speak? We're too quick to speak. Not before this God. He's holy and just. We need to make ourselves ready. When we do, we really show our heart. We cannot flippantly come before a holy God. He doesn't. And he gives us a great example to follow. It says in verse 4, And I prayed, and look at what he says, I prayed to the Lord my God. This is the first time in Daniel he uses the covenant name for God. It's used only in this chapter, and it's used seven times in this chapter, and it's the word Yahweh. It means the existing one. It means the true God. It means the God who has a special relationship between himself and his people. That's why he includes in here, my God. So he says here, Yahweh, my Elohim, my God. It just shows again that he, he knows who he's coming to. And he's appealing to God based on his covenant with his people. Again, where's he going back to? He's going back to Deuteronomy. He's going back to where God made a covenant with his people. What was the covenant? If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Well, they understand that now because they were in exile for now 65 to 68 years. They understand that God's serious about that. And now Daniel comes and appeals to God, makes himself ready, and says, Lord, I'm coming to you as the covenant-making God because I'm going to appeal to you in prayer based on you making agreement with your people. In a sense, Lord, I'm going to hold you up your word. That's, what, that's, what he, that's how he sets it up. In fact, how do I know he sets it up like that? Well, look what it says in verse number 4. And I'm not going to look at that because that's what we're, I'm going to take up next week. He says, And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And then he, and then he of course, he, he goes on and starts working on confession of sin. See, he understands very clearly what he's doing. And he's doing it meticulously. He's doing it with great caution. He's doing it realizing he's sinner and God's holy, and he's doing it in a very reverent way. I think a main point that we can glean from this particular prayer, I think it's when we come to God in prayer, especially in times of great need, our spiritual attitude is of primary importance. In prayer, attitude holds priority over the act itself. Do you realize that? Well, some principles we can glean, I think, from at least these three verses is that 
Number one, Bible study is always great preparation for prayer. Daniel went to the Scriptures first. If we are to remain a praying church, we must strive to love and understand our Bibles. That points us to our God. And then also that humility and brokenness form a significant part of biblical, the biblical prayer attitude. Without it, there's probably not genuine prayer. In D.A. Carson's book uh, that I'm leafing through now on prayer, in one of his chapters, actually between pages 111 and 122, he, he brings up the excuses why people don't pray. And of course, you heard some of them before. He brings up about six of them, and he says, number one, why, why do people not pray at all, let alone coming to the Lord in this way? Sometimes we have to worry, we have to be concerned about our people praying at all, right? Is Number one, I'm too busy to pray. Number two, I feel too dry spiritually to pray. Number three, I feel no need to pray. Number four, I'm too bitter to pray. Number five, I'm too ashamed to pray. And last but not least, I'm content with mediocrity. I think that last one hits close to home. And we're just in the preparation phase. We're going to be repenting in sackcloth and ashes when we, when we get done with this prayer, I'm telling you. And I pray that we, in our hearts, we are doing this. Even though this is very quite literal here, they actually did these things, some of these things. It's not that you go home and, you know, cut out burlap bags and sit in your corner in, in a pile of ashes. I don't want you to do that. But I tell you what, the attitude of our heart, the preparation of our heart, not having a lackadaisical attitude towards prayer, but a very serious and a sober and a focused and a reverent attitude toward understanding who we're coming to, why we're coming to Him, what we're praying about, and to not stop doing it. Hold on to God until He answers us. And to pray prayers that He can answer. That is in line with His Word. That is in line with His will. I want to pray like that. I want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be content with mediocrity. I don't. I hate. I want to hate that word. I want to be. I don't even want to be content with excellence. I don't know if I want to be content in this area. Maybe if you get content, you stop doing it this way. I just want to do it. And I want to do it with the right heart, the right attitude. If that's going to hold priority over the act, that's what I want to do. And I pray you want to do it too. So I think that at this point in, in Daniel, it, it becomes real personal. That we figure out he's really a man. But he's quite a man. Let's follow his example. And implement some of these very practical things in our own lives. Let's pray. Lord, after, after looking... At Daniel, your servant, 
after all he's been through. Him realizing the timing of your program for the exiles to bring them back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, to give them hope again and meet that need. Your need was greater than that need. Your need went beyond just that event. And Daniel understood that too. Thank you, Lord, that you still in your program have designed prayer to move your hand. You've designed prayer to move your will, to move your plan. I pray, Lord, that we'd be part of the process like Daniel was. And I pray, Lord, that even in our own prayer time, that we would be more conscious of how we come before you. I pray that we would learn to come attentively and not with a cloudy, confused mind. I pray that we learn to come fervently. We would know that we come to seek you. And we come to seek you for answers. And I pray that we come before you intimately. Because we have a, a relationship with you, Lord. We walk with you. You are our God. You are the one who said that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that we become reverently and we would constantly be crying from our heart for acts of forgiveness and deliverance. And that, Lord, we would ultimately come humbly. And I just pray, Lord, that you would make us aware of the attitude in which we do come to you. And I pray, Lord, don't allow us to be guilty of having all these reasons why we don't do this. I pray that prayer would become more important than breathing to us. That's possible. Lord, forgive us for not taking prayer seriously. Forgive us for this sin of prayerlessness. Forgive us for that. And help us, Lord. Give us strength. And of course, I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.